The Hamlet Podcast, episode 36. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. This week, we begin Act 3, Scene 4, which will be our focus for the next three or four episodes. It's one of the most famous scenes of the play, and certainly one of the most dramatic. Shakespeare has been building it up for quite some time, laying hints and giving frequent comments that there's going to be a big dinner tonight, hosted by King Macbeth and his Queen. The transition into this scene is quite a challenge, since any production will have to decide how to remove the corpse of Banquo from the end of the last scene and bring on this banquet. The more bodies that a production can afford to sit at the dining tables, the more dramatic the scene might be. Regardless of how many are actually coming to dinner, the scene begins with the banquet being prepared and then Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, as King and Queen, will enter, accompanied by Ross, Lennox and whoever else can be spared to play lords and attendants at the feast. All of this is an excuse for some pageantry and a presentation of the formal structure of Macbeth's court. Everyone is seated according to rank, The Macbeths will be at the most prestigious part of the table, and everyone else will sit at varying distances from them. Macbeth is throwing this dinner to legitimise his kingship, so it's quite a performative event. Everyone has to be on their best behaviour. Even Lady Macbeth has been reminding the king to be friendly among their guests, and now they've all filed in and arranged themselves at this formal dining table or tables, depending on how many the set designer wants to show us. Given that everything has been formally arranged, Macbeth now tries to keep things bright and jovial, as Mrs Macbeth said a little while ago. He's the first to speak, saying, You know your own degrees. Sit down. At first and last, the hearty welcome. This is a good opener, welcoming everyone at once, There's a little irony to his insisting that everyone sit according to their degrees and then telling them that they're all equally welcome nonetheless. Some, perhaps, are more equal than others. At first and last, you're heartily welcome, but don't even think about trying to change your seat or your standing. Everyone is gracious and perhaps obedient, and they all speak as one in response, saying, Thanks to your majesty. It's hard to tell what the court might think of Macbeth at this point. Presumably the story of the guards and Duncan's sons has stuck, and suspicion hasn't fallen on the Macbeths, since they have indeed become king and queen. But Macbeth isn't taking any chances, and wants to ensure that everyone is on his side. Rather than taking his own prestigious seat at the table, he decides to schmooze. He says... Ourself will mingle with society and play the humble host. Our hostess keeps her state, but in best time we will require her welcome. He wants to mingle among the lords around the table, playing humble, perhaps even playing barman and serving them their drink. The night of the murder, Duncan was extremely generous to everyone at the feast in his honour. Macbeth knows he will have to do at least as well tonight. He lets Lady Macbeth sit in her rightful place. She keeps her state, but he suggests that he will call on her later to propose a toast of welcome. 
Lady Macbeth chimes in immediately. She says, Pronounce it for me, sir, to all our friends, for my heart speaks they are welcome. She proved herself a real master of this sweet talk in the moment that Duncan arrived at their castle, and does so again here. She wants everyone to know, from her heart, how welcome they are to her home and to her table. It's quite clever staging to split the Macbeths here. Lady Macbeth is now at the focal point of the room, and as she commands the attention of all the lords at the table, the first murderer slips in at the door. The only person who sees him is Macbeth, at some point in his next speech. In it, he basically narrates the room's response to the lady's welcome. See, they encounter thee with their heart's thanks. Both sides are even. Here I'll sit i' the midst. Be large in mirth. Anon we'll drink a measure the table round. Macbeth is eager to be seen as a first among equals here. Sure, he's king, but he wants to be considered one of the men too. These lords will need to stay loyal if, for example, Malcolm comes back. The two sides of the dining table are even, but Macbeth jokes that he'll still sit among them. He wants everyone to have a good time, that they be large in mirth. Presumably he's stage-managing things as he proclaims that they'll drink a measure the table round anon. And over the course of this line, he's probably moving towards this grim-looking murderer, who has surely come straight from the grounds where he attacked Banquo. When he reaches him, Macbeth darkly points out that there's blood upon thy face. The murderer happily responds, "'Tis Banquo's then." However this might be staged, Macbeth needs to get this murderer out of earshot. The first three words from the murderer's mouth are extremely incriminating. "'Tis Banquo's then." It's an explanation that Banquo is now dead and Macbeth is obviously involved. Macbeth replies to him with a very bleak comment. "'Tis better thee without than he within.' He's happier to know that Banquo's blood is on the outside of this first murderer than still inside his friend. Tis better thee without than he within. The syntax isn't very helpful, but it's a typically morbid piece of antithesis. Regardless of whose blood it is, Macbeth still has to ask, is he dispatched? He needs to know if Banquo is dead. The murderer is proud to report... My lord, his throat is cut. That I did for him. This obviously explains the splatter of blood. Macbeth is happy to hear it. Thou art the best of the cutthroats. Yet he's good that did the like for Fleance. If thou didst it, thou art the non-parai. Of course, it's more than Banquo that needs to be dispatched. Macbeth is delighted that this cutthroat has killed Banquo, but he proclaims that he'll be as happy to hear who cut Fleance's throat. And, if indeed this same murderer killed both of them, he is a killer without equal, a non-pariah. Now comes the bad news, of course. The murderer has to confess. Most royal sir, Fleance escaped. It was going so well. But Fleance has to get away. Macbeth is deflated immediately. Some editions of the text might tell you that his next line should be an aside. Some don't. He says, 
Then comes my fit again. I had else been perfect, whole as the marble, founded as the rock, as broad and general as the casing air. But now I am cabined, cribbed, confined, bound in to saucy doubts and fears. But Banquo's safe. This fit that Macbeth describes isn't nearly as disturbing as those suffered by the likes of Julius Caesar and Othello, who have genuinely debilitating health episodes within their respective plays. Macbeth just means another attack of the discomfort and unrest he's been feeling, worrying about the future foretold to Banquo by the witches. If both Banquo and Fleance were dead, everything would be perfect, solid as marble, secure as rock. He and Lady Macbeth would be as free and unencumbered as the air that surrounds the whole earth. Broad and general, as listed here, imply freedom from all possible constraints. And this juxtaposes nicely with the next line, as Macbeth complains that since Fleance is still alive, he is cabined, cribbed, confined. Three nice sea words, implying the same feeling of enclosure, entrapment, He's bound to saucy doubts and fears. To us nowadays, saucy seems like a rather trivial word, like cheeky or sassy. For Macbeth, it's insolence, it's presumptuousness, it's people trying to improve their status in his court, and, of course, try to topple him. Since we've seen the whole place set up for his banquet, everything in place, there's certainly no room for any cheek or any insurrection in Macbeth's version of court, no matter how pally he tries to be with his lords and attendants. So, of course, he's rattled by Fleance's escape. But he confirms again. But Banquo's safe? Safe is this euphemism we've heard twice already to mean dead. The murderer confirms. Aye, my good lord. Safe in a ditch he bides, with twenty trenched gashes on his head, the least a death to nature. This is grisly. Banquo is lying in a ditch, with twenty deep gashes on his head. Even the least of them would be fatal, a death to nature. It's important for us to know that Banquo is well and truly dead, and this is why Shakespeare gives us such a striking sense of how brutal the killing was, and how unceremoniously the murderers left him in this ditch. Absolutely no remorse from Macbeth either. He says, thanks for that. There the grown serpent lies. The worm that's fled hath nature that in time will venom breed. No teeth for the present. Get thee gone. Tomorrow we'll hear ourselves again. It's a plain enough thank you for the job done. Macbeth likens Banquo and Fleance to snakes directly this time. Earlier he spoke of the snake that had been scotched but not killed, but this was his doubtful joy at being king, and the snake was this threat of other claimants bothering him. Now Banquo is the grown serpent, and he lies there in the ditch, a second reference to his location for reasons that will soon become dramatically clear. But Fleance, the worm, or the younger snake, that has fled, has nature in him that will venom breed. He will grow up and most likely be a problem for Macbeth. But for now, he has no teeth. Even if he has escaped, he isn't an immediate threat. So the murderer can be dismissed. 
Macbeth says, get thee gone. But there will be more. He tells the murderer that they will speak more tomorrow. Perhaps there are other people who will need to be dispatched. This scene is one of the most challenging for the actor playing Macbeth. There's such a spider web of different relationships that have to be presented, and he's at the centre of them all. He has to tread a fine line with Lady Macbeth, showing unity with her, but also keeping that distance that's been creeping in between them. He has to be bright and jovial with his guests, but also keep an eye on them and make sure they're all towing the line. And then he has to slip out and get this update from his paid assassin, who has just murdered his best friend. He doesn't quite get the news he wanted, and now has to go and rejoin the banquet and put another brave face on. And perhaps it will be a nice evening, despite the fleance setback. You know right well it won't, of course, but you'll have to wait until next week to hear what happens next. If you know the play or you're reading along, you can find out immediately, but if not, be sure to tune in next time for one of the great Shakespearean shocks on stage. It's always a pleasure to have you tuning in and joining me on this journey, and I'll speak to you next time.